Canucks Central Monday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah in the Kintec studio. Canucks Central is brought to you by Grip Auto Entire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. The Canucks have the uh, Washington Capitals today. They've lost their first two games of the season, Sat, in, uh, let's say, very Canucky fashion. Yeah, it hasn't been great. You know, like it, it's it's uh, it, it hasn't been uh, uh, an admiring moment, admirable moment for this organization. But you know what? It's it's two games into the season, and, and we're going to delve into this with Frank coming yep. up in a second, and we'll also talk about everything else going on around the National Hockey League. And believe it or not, there are situations that are uh, more hot yes. than Vancouver, where jobs may truly be on the line. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vancouver was the area where uh, chanting began about yes. people's jobs last year. That's already begun two games in for the New Jersey Devils. Uh, Frank Saravalli is going to join us in, in a couple of moments. On that note, though, Sat, okay, I get it. There's a lot of uh, expectation on this Canucks team this year. 0-2 to start the season. It sucks. But are people really serious about Bruce Boudreaux's seat being even the slightest bit warm? I mean, I think it comes down to what the discussion is truly about. Yeah. Is his seat hot in terms of actually losing his job? I don't see it. Yeah. Is his seat hot in terms of, is is he doing the things they want to see from the coach? And is the team responding the way they want to see? And big picture, is it a fit? But that's nothing new. Yeah. That's... Wasn't that the question after the season when they didn't commit to him beyond the one-year option? Exactly. When he was forced into accepting the option year rather than you know getting a new extension that wouldn't make him a lame duck coach. You know, I get all that. But the reason I have a problem with what we've seen and why it's somehow correlating to pressure on the coach is like these are not new problems that the team is displaying if anything they've played in my estimation fairly well for i don't know four of the six periods maybe that's being a bit generous on my part but i want to finish this travis green wasn't able to coach out the mistakes that the canucks were making the Blue line passes blind into bad areas that are going to end up in odd man rushes the other way. That's still happening. They've gone through a myriad of assistant coaches. They haven't been able to coach those mistakes out of this team. Bruce Boudreaux, yeah, it was different maybe for about 56 games last year. But it's still a problem that this team has exhibited. And I don't know if you want to call it laziness, a lack of focus, a lack of recognizing the urgency of which this season has to start with, even though they've talked about it all training camp and preseason long. The bottom line is this comes down to the players more than it does anything the coach has done through training camp, preseason, and the first two games. Well, it, it it is the players. I mean, yeah. I don't know how we can sit here and say the problem with this team is the coach. But I do think if you're asking the question, it's about the fit with the organization as far as how management sees it. That's the overarching theme of this season in terms of will Boudreaux be here beyond this year or not. It's not really just the start. It's about... Are they going to play the way they want this team to play? Are they seeing the team respond the way they want to see the team respond? And are they fixing the habits they want to see this team fix? So far through two games, it's not great. But the person you're not you're not blaming the coach here. 
You know, like to me, it's not the coach's fault. Now, if I look at how this team has played too, they're breaking out a lot better. To your point, are you being generous with four to six? Uh, you know, four periods out of six have been good. I take, yeah, I'd say maybe they've been good in three periods. Like, I don't think any period they were actually good against Philly. Sure, they were better in in, in the third and the second and stuff. But I think the bar is low. <laughs> I, I would you watch the game and I'm like, I don't know, yeah. man. Maybe that was just relative to what they were in and the first play- period on on Saturday. Yeah, and it's not like they're playing this great Philly team. Philly worked hard, sure. Yeah, but I mean, they well, had they a got ton of worked. flaws, and but they had they had chances, yeah. they had giveaways, they had moments they could have pressed them. And I don't know, I wasn't impressed with how they played in Philly at all. It, part of the part of my problem is it's a team that persistently has played down to their opponents too. Yeah. You know, you know they they've seemed to play up. You know, I, I can never forget that game against Colorado last year where I was like, who is this team? <laughs> you know, and then, you know, they'll they'll play Philly like on Saturday and it just looks like a completely different team. Now, on this note, Elliot Friedman uh, was talking about uh, the, the Bruce Boudreaux conversation on Donnie and Dolly earlier today. Here's what he had to say. Hey, Canucks in Washington tonight. You know what uh, Canucks Twitter is like. You know what Canucks Nation is like. How concerned yep. should uh, Canucks Nation be about an 0-2 start? And not just an 0-2 start, but uh, two games in which the Canucks blew leads. Look, I, I think you're – I'm not a guy who likes to panic early. I, I really don't. Uh, I don't think you like what's happened in the first two games exactly because of what you mentioned, Don. I, I think the thing that adds the added – um, level of, I don't know if concern's the right word, but the level of intrigue here is just that, you know, is the front office and the coaching staff mm-hmm. on the same page? I, I think that's what we're all kind of wondering here. And whenever you have a situation where you kind of worry about what the future of the coach is or the future of somebody is, and you start the way this team has started, you begin to say, okay, like how long is the leash? How much is the patience there? What are, what's kind of going on here? And, I think that's the only reason I look at Vancouver in any kind of different situation than some of the other teams that started poorly is because you're just curious about the patience of the overall organization. That's all. So there is uh, Elliot Friedman uh, from earlier on Donnie and Dolly. Talked about it on 32 Thoughts as well and the Jeff Merrick Show earlier on Sports at 650. It's, um, it's, it's sort of what you alluded to, Sat, and a question that, will be persistently asked until Bruce Boudreaux either gets an extension or the other side of the coin ends up flipping on this situation. Yeah, I mean, I I don't ex- I don't expect the C Boudreaux sign any signing an extension during the season. Yeah, I don't think that. And I think what would ha- what has to happen is the season comes to an end, mm-hmm. and they start evaluating. Okay, how did this season go? What does it look like? Is he truly the guy or not? But I mean, we knew all this this off season based on how they approached the situation with Boudreaux. Didn't give him more than a year, and even even the organization said there are certain things they want to see beyond this year. And one thing that uh, Rutherford also mentioned was, hey, we're already paying multiple coaches not to coach. Yeah, so we don't want to commit to a guy too soon and be in a situation where we're paying multiple coaches not to coach again. And I don't think they have any appetite at the moment to be paying over $4 million for two coaches not to coach this season. Yeah, and in a front office that uh, well, they've really invested in over the course of the offseason. Let's bring in our next guest. It's Frank Saravalli. He's our Monday Hockey Insider. You see his work at uh, the Daily Faceoff as well. Uh, Frank, uh, I can't believe it. It's two games in and we're already talking about Bruce Boudreaux and whether or not the seat is actually warm. 
Yeah, I mean, when I made the bold prediction last week or 10 days ago in my story, I, I wasn't trying to speak it into existence. <laughs> but uh, but here we are. Yeah, but you blow a 3 nothing lead and a 2 nothing lead in this market with the expectations on this team, and I, I guess we shouldn't expect any different from how people react, but... You know, th- this is um, – it is kind of crazy, but I-, I feel like the Canucks are not alone in feeling this pressure so early on in the season. I mean, for crying out loud, we already heard Fire Lindy chants over in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, opening night, um, and he seemed shocked on the bench, and they had already declared their players that that was a must-win in Game 2, Miles Wood. And the only common thread between the Devils and Canucks is, aside from being teams that wanted to take steps closer to being playoff teams, um, that they both lost to the Flyers to open this season. So uh, definitely part of it is the opponent in the second game that I think adds a little bit to it. And I, I just think, here's the thing. like, I, Do I think the Canucks, and their brass are sitting here right now, two games into the season, with their finger on the trigger saying, you know, let's do this, or we're thinking about it, or, or whatever it, whatever terminology or phrase you want to use. I don't think that's the case. But I do think that there is pressure on this team, and specifically from this front office, to make a move before this season, if it happens, to get to that point, gets away from itself. Um, you know, there's not going to be the same rope as last year where you wait until December 4th in order to start fixing things. I think that was also a learning lesson from last year. And the rebound, you know, had Bruce Boudreaux's team last year uh, and, and group been given more time, could they have found a way to get into the playoffs? Maybe. Um, and so, you know, look, again, I don't think anyone's sitting here trying to, to make a decision today, but it, 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 I don't think it'll drag on forever. I can say that. And no, I'm 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 with you that they don't want the season to get away from them. The one of the things too, though, is they would probably rather make a trade, I think, than to put this on another coach, even if they're not sold on Boudreau. And I think it's it's pretty clear that, like Elliot mentioned, they may not necessarily be on the same page vision wise. We've heard different things being said, and it's clear they haven't, you know, extended him beyond the season. So there are you know real questions to ask about that. But but I still think that if if things do keep going this way and they keep losing and they can't right the ship, then maybe they look to do something with the roster first because how many times can you let these players get away with it and put it on the coach? Okay, Sat. So I, I agree with you, but I think it's been difficult to get to that point as evidenced by the relative lack of maneuverability from this front office already this summer and, yeah. and the ability to make things happen. Where would you start? I mean, honestly, like if you're not signing Bo Horvat to a contract extension, you better get ahead of that at some point, whether that's now or like, I don't think that situation should remain unsolved until the trade deadline. I I think that's a bad way of going about it. Like as much as there isn't much happening on that front, they would, I mean, they have to figure something out within the next couple of months, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's a fair question to ask. And then also like, do you then take a player like Bo Horvat just as a, like philosophically speaking, Mm -hmm. Um, and use him as a piece to to find a defenseman yeah. because I think that's when you when you boil it all down, that's really what sticks out to me. Like there's a number of things, and, and no one's overreacting after two games. Like let's not kid ourselves. Uh, we all enjoy a, a nice dramatic story, but it is still just <laughs> two games. The point is, when you look at this team, there's a whole host of factors 
you know, your, their stars need to be their star players. And, and Quinn Hughes has had a little bit of a shaky start. Um, it's just in terms of crispness and Pedersen's been good at even strength, but not so much on the power play and go down the list. The penalty kill hasn't been good. The power play hasn't found the back of the net, all those things. To me, I still think there's a foundational building block issue um, in terms of the way that this team is constructed with their defense core that, you know, you've got a star player in Quinn Hughes and then it starts to get really thin in a hurry. One thing we often talk about is like it's it's not like the decor is cheap as currently constructed. It's uh they they spend as much as anybody else back there. It just it's a weird mix of players and one that hasn't really worked out. You know, you have OEL on the big contract. Myers is making a big ticket. Pullman's making a a good amount of money for the player that that he's been through his career. It, it's it's more just inefficient money that they've spent back there rather than, you know, trying to fix it with money. One, well, that's what you saw Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford in their group try and do on the forward end to start, which is fix some of those inefficiencies. How do you do that? You, you trade Jason Dickinson as one. Like, you, you know, they've gone down that path to try and rectify some of these issues. They're not all possible to clean up overnight. Um, and the other part of it is there needs to be pieces out there that really get you excited that you think are good fits for your group uh, if you're not building those by the draft. So it, it's it's a lot easier said than done. Well, and, and, you know, the funny thing, too, is for as much as we talk about potential trades and, and guys who might get moved, it seems like things are super quiet around the league right now. Is, is that the sense you get, too, as far as, you know, it's trade discussions? Insanely quiet. Yeah. What is that? I you mean, think? Look, I think it's just trying to see what's going on early in the season because usually there's some discussions even early in the season. Yeah, I think part of it is teams are trying to figure out what they have. Mm-hmm. Like they've gone through camp and like they get a, a general sense, and it, it really takes a solid ten games for anyone to really get an idea, a concrete idea of of what they have on their hands. They may have suspicions, and those can either be supported or. Uh, basically chucked out the window based on how the first 10 games go one way or the other, positively or negatively. So that's the process, and the lack of cap space adds to the lack of conversation. Like, you know, talking to a manager the other day, he was saying, look, if I'm not picking up the phone calling them to ask what's going on, they're not calling me because there's nothing happening around the league. Mm -hmm. You know, it is uh... (laughs) – Fixing the defense has uh, been the Canucks. Uh, it's been their biggest priority for, let's say, a few years now, Frank. But it's it's just so hard to go out and acquire those players. Like, even in trade, I mean, maybe Miller does end up getting moved if the Canucks do find the right right shot defenseman. Maybe if the Rangers were more willing to move off of Braden Schneider, there's a deal to be had there. But it's just... Any right shot defenseman that has some pedigree within an organization is so tough to pry away. Yeah, I mean, those are all facts. Not breaking news that the Canucks defense has not been their strong suit, Yeah, that they lack depth. Um, and not breaking news that right shot defensemen, Dan, are hard to find. Um, I would say, in general, like, the only thing that, you know, when, when you talk to other front offices around the league, and this is not a Vancouver thing specifically, because we hear this all the time, and obviously I, I make stops around the country before I join you guys, everyone is sick of hearing fan bases, oh, it's hard. Mm. It's hard to do this. It's hard to do that. 
Like, there's a reason you're put into, into this position and role, and that's to make something happen. Some of these other teams that have gone out and done it, like, I don't, their general manager isn't sitting here saying, oh, it's hard. Yeah, it is, but that you're, you need to be a problem solver and make something happen. And, um, yeah. Well, and, and as far as stuff happening around the league, it doesn't seem like anything is imminent with Vancouver, of course, but the, the situation with the most heat and pressure is clearly the, the New Jersey stop with the Devils, with Devils fans chanting for Lindy Ruff to lose his job. I mean, you don't usually see that within the first couple of games of the season. I mean, is that tenable, that situation? Well, I, I covered a team in which their head coach was fired two games into the season. I'll never forget, <laughs> I was covering the Flyers for the Philadelphia Daily News, woke up after a loss in Carolina, and the Flyers fired Peter Laviolette, um, breaking that news, type, punching it into Twitter and sending it out in the you know, sort of infancy days of Twitter. It was like, holy smokes, I can't believe this is a real thing. A team fired their coach two games into the year. So mm-hmm. it has been done. Um, I do think that there is, you know, certainly some smoke to going back to last season and the due diligence process that the New Jersey Devils, you know, undertook after their season to try and unpack everything that happened. They did a deep, deep dive on Lindy Ruff and and his coaching staff obviously made changes um, to the assistants, given that, um, you know, you look at at who's behind the bench now, um, including Andrew Brunette coming over from Florida as sort of this, you know, guy who had incredible success last year as a head coach with the Panthers winning the president's trophy, seemingly waiting in the wings. Um, the fact that they went through that process, though, after about a week or 10 days and landed on the idea of bringing back Lindy Ruff, I think it was surprising then at the time. And, you know, even now to this point, again, I, I think the leash is, is really rather short for a team that also had expectations to be a lot better. Goaltending, man, it's uh, it's been the hardest thing for the New Jersey Devils uh, to to figure out, and it's been uh, their problem through two games. Uh, curious, not the Canucks' problem, by the way. No, not not Vancouver's problem. Just uh, really ugly turnovers and really bad moments, and keep giving up shorthanded goals. Um, Sonny Milano, uh, like, what's the deal there? I I, I would have thought, especially with the year that he had last year, that he would have had a few more suitors. the The whole situation was kind of shocking. He ends up on waivers and. Uh, is is now with the Washington Capitals. Uh, what do you make of what happened with uh, with with Milano this offseason? He's now with the Hershey Bears after clearing. That's true. Waivers. Yes. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing with Sonny Milano. Obviously, a really skilled player. Fourteen, I think it was fourteen goals last year. Thirty-five points, thirty-four points, somewhere in that neighborhood. He had a pretty decent year statistically, and I don't think anyone questions that he's a skilled hockey player. But just talking to some of the people that saw him up close and personal after his PTO with the Flames, the big question I think they kept asking themselves in that Flames front office was, what does what does Sonny Milano do to help you win? Like, what's his calling card? What's something that helps you hang your hat on that you can rely on? Is it, you know, one specific facet of the game? Like, is it speed? What, is, what does he do that helps you win? And, and no one could really effectively answer that question. And they made the decision, of course, uh, to move on from the PTO. He doesn't end up earning the contract. And that left him hanging out there. The, the Caps take a chance. It's always possible for players, you know, at this point in their career to try and find a new role and, and do something a little bit differently. And that's going to be his question mark for the next little while as he tries to make it back to the league is, 
you know, what, what is he doing to help you win? Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it's, he's one of those guys that when you look at the stats and the underlying numbers, they look really solid for him, but then you start looking at systems play. Does it fit into how coaches want him to play? And, you know, uh, you know, circling back to the trade stuff. I mean, the only guy I can really look at and say, okay, he, there's a real legitimate discussion for a team that might get desperate on the back end. And that's Jacob Chikrin, who's getting close to making his return and everything. What do you make of that situation? And he's been very open about wanting to get traded. Clearly, they're not going to move him unless they get the package they want. Do you get the sense, though, that it's, it's going to take quite some time for that to resolve itself? Well, how long has it been since we've really began having those discussions? Yeah. It feels like, I, I don't know the exact, it feels like 18 months ago. That's how long it feels like he's dangled out there. And it, you use the word at, at some point in another question, untenable. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like this is getting towards with Jacob Chikrin, that Look, he's been the good soldier. At first, he was like, "Hey, I, I really like it in Arizona. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not itching to get out of here." He really likes his life there, and he wanted to be part of the solution. And then the lo- I think the longer you hear your name out there, you start to be like, "Okay, am I really wanted here? Am I? Go- are they counting on me to be part of the solution?" So that was the next sort of facet of it. And then he's watched as basically almost every talented player around him on the blue line has been, you know, sort of pried away and and moved on to another place. And so he's now in a spot where the team doesn't necessarily want him uh, and doesn't see him as part of that long-term future, I think, when they finally get to where they want to get to. And they're not trying to be competitive. And he's going, okay, well, I'm in a spot in my career. How long is it going to take me uh, to get to a place with this team where we can have a, just a chance to win. And so he's 24, and is that five years away? Like, when is that? He's got two-plus years remaining this entire year and two more on his deal. You know, at that cap hit, when he's healthy and producing the way that he does, as a guy that scored 18 goals in a shortened season, which is ridiculous from the back end, he didn't show that last year and the injury didn't help. I'd imagine that when we see him get back, which will be relatively soon, he's not with the Coyotes on this current trip. I saw he posted on his Instagram yesterday that he's still in the desert, um, getting close to getting back to playing, that when we do see him, you see a really engaged Jacob Chikrin that's like, hey, I'm going to play my way out of here if that's the case. It uh, It's almost starting to feel like the Matt Duchesne situation, which ended up working out pretty well for Colorado, I'd say. But uh, still waiting to see that trade offer come through for Arizona. Frank, always appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Uh, there is uh, Frank Saravalli. Uh, we've uh, we, we've seen it in the past where like trade requests linger around for a mm. while. I, I think of Duchesne, um, even Drouin in uh, in Tampa Bay. Remember Steve Eisman like held out before moving him, and then yeah. eventually like Duran came back, played really well, and then they mm-hmm. swap him for for Mikhail Sergachev. So. Uh, I can think of past examples where waiting has really worked out for the team that held the player. And sometimes the player just stays, like Louis, uh, like uh, Jake DeBrusque in yeah. uh, Boston right now. We'll see how that situation goes. Clearly not the same caliber of player that uh, a Jacob Chikrin is. But when a guy is as good as Chikrin is, or at least as valued an asset as Jacob Chikrin is, you can't afford to mess up with that trade. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. When you have a piece that's that valuable and you know you're getting at least one premium player back in return you have to really maximize it and if you don't that's the traits everyone's going to remember because you're trading the best player in that in that deal you know and ultimately you need to hit the home run usually it doesn't bode bode well for those teams or doesn't look well as well 
it's worked out for teams like Colorado, of course, with yep. the trades they've made and, and the hauls they got back in return. Well, they and ended up getting and getting that. They ended up getting Gerard and Bowen Byram in the Duchesne trade. Yeah, and you know, from some of the things that also people don't pay enough attention to is that there's organizational pressure sometimes yeah. from ownership about like, hey, we want you to we want you to get something yeah. back, and we want you to get something big back in return. We want you to hit a home run with this. It's important that you get a lot of value in this, and you don't know what all the factors are, but usually the best players and the top guys. There is an investment from ownership in getting those players in the first place and paying those players in the first place. And then when you want to convince them that you have to move those players, you have to convince them why. And if your argument is we got to get a good return, then the expectation is you got to get a great return. So that pressure sometimes is bigger than anything else that we consider. The owner is going to want something back that that he can sell to his fan base, right? Um, And and that isn't always the case when you're making a a trade for futures. Uh, It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. We are Canuck Central. We'll continue on this uh, chat about Boudreaux and what's gone on with the Canucks that have led them, that have led us to this conversation. We'll get to more in-depth discussion on that. Plus, the pregame show is coming up after 3 o'clock. It is Canuck Central. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Canuck Central also brought to you by Grip Auto Entire, quality service you can trust, and 14 locations to serve you. So we talked a lot about Bruce Boudreaux and, you know, getting some reaction from our live listeners Always interested to hear from those that are listening live. Um, Trader Bob, I think you'll see a major trade before you see Bruce lose his job if the losing continues. Um, There was more of those types of thoughts. Put this to rest came in on Twitter as well from one of our listeners. So I'm here for that, (laughs) obviously, with the way that we chatted. But uh, as, as Elliot alluded to, Sat, there's... It's not necessarily about Boudreaux. It's more the uncertainty of the whole situation moving forward. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to Amar's point on Twitter, too, who mentioned, you know, Elliot's not making stuff up, and nobody suggests that he's making stuff up. I mean, that's not what Amar said, but he's like, he must be hearing something if he's mentioning it repeatedly and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's getting it from somewhere, and I don't think it's wrong, but what I'm saying is... It's it's a question that we've been aware of, you know, and that and as the Canucks, the worst their start is. And we had a discussion like this was before the Abbotsford game. We were talking on the mm-hmm. pregame show, and, and people were asking questions. And one of the questions was, you, you know, it, it, what would have to happen for Boudreaux to be in trouble this season? And my immediate answer was, well, I don't think they want to be paying three coaches this year, so I think that that should answer it. But number two, how they start, how they play, how things trend, how, what habits they display, the systems that they play, how the players are coming along, all those things are going to reflect on Boudreaux. And even if the, the, he's the, the, part of, the first part of the season won't get him fired, what it could do is prevent him from getting that extension. So could it be what Elliot's hearing is that he, the organization isn't impressed with what they're seeing from Boudreaux? And that's not a good thing because it's probably not going to help his cases stay here beyond this season. So that's the way I read it. And I'm not putting any, any words in, into Elliot's mouth or anything. And I'm not saying he's wrong or anything because I think he's getting this from yeah. somewhere, what he's mentioning. But my point is, 
I don't think he's getting fired if they lose all f- like I think he's coming back to coach the first game <laughs> against Buffalo on Saturday, no matter what happens on this road yeah. trip. Like I think that's happening here. It, it's it's more about this still being a constant evaluation yes. of Bruce Boudreaux than, that's a good than way anything of, else. That's a good way of framing it. Yeah. yeah. So, and like the and like if you do like a chart, like a <laughs> you know, stock chart or whatever, yep. you're gonna have like some ups and downs in that evaluation. The question is, do you get to the point where it's acceptable to have an extension by the end of the season? And it's going to take a lot to get there. Uh, I think that's that's fairly obvious. You know, I mean, you've we've talked about this. Is is playoffs the bar? I think, especially early in the season, so much matters about mm-hmm. process. Sat and you know, I said they've they've been pretty good for four periods. You yeah. said that was very generous. Uh, I don't of know. Me to I think the that. bar has to be a lot higher. You it, know, what it I does mean? have to be higher. Like Saturday's game. It wasn't against good enough. Philadelphia was was very poor, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and sure they they generated some chances over the course of the second half of that game, and it it, it was almost as if they weren't awake mm-hmm. for the start of and for the early start. And we've seen this team be plagued by the early starts on the East Coast uh, for for many a year in the past, but. I mean, the the expectations just have to be higher right now for this team. And what's most frustrating, and and again, to bring it back to the overarching conversation around Boudreaux, I mean, he's sort of fighting the same demons that previous coaches have had. It's, It's more about this core overcoming their own demons than it is how a coach is setting them up to play. Yeah, and that that's a big part of it. Like, the, what's our biggest question heading into the season? The maturity of the team, yeah. really. Like, how, how do they mature? And that was also a big question last year. And clearly, they weren't ready for it. And the hope was they were going to springboard off the 57 games with Boudreaux last year. And this is the team now. And hey, it's only two games. Maybe it changes. And it's going to be fine, perhaps, and all those sort of things. But it's at a point where you have to prove it. And you have to establish it consistently. You haven't done this for a full season yet. Yet you have fifty-seven games. Yeah. Even in those fifty-seven games, like Peter and Cloverdale mentions, there's still blowout losses. Are there good teams don't have as many as they do? They have some player problems. And hey, every team has blowout losses in a season. It does happen. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection if you blow a three-goal lead a couple times. Those things do happen. But it's more about the trend in which it happens. And you know, the the thing that I don't like that I'm seeing, especially on the power play, which which to me is symbolic of. The mentality, I think, which I believe needs to change, there's an arrogance when they're on the power play, which I think is unearned. Yeah. It's like, hey, you guys aren't good enough to kind of like not take, to be like, oh, we're going to figure this out. We'll be good here. We can kind of play like we got a cigarette in our mouth and we're all good. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, I love I love the fact that you guys are confident in everything. Yeah. But there needs to be more urgency and there needs to be more humility with, with how serious to take special teams. Because to me, it's not a, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that this team's biggest issue the past couple of years has been special teams yeah. and how they handle duress and stress. Because teams that are mentally tough, teams that have the character you're looking for, the preparation you're looking for, the belief you're looking for, and the discipline you're looking for, handle moments of stress well. And moments of stress, I think on the PK, you see this team wilt a lot. Yeah. You see them in certain moments wilt a lot. But on the power play, when they have the advantage... They have this arrogance to them sometimes, which I think is unearned. Like if you're if you're establishing yourself as a top five peak power play every year, you're making the playoffs every year, and you're 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 bulldozing teams. Fine, play that way. That's cool. But you guys have barely yeah. scored on the power play, yeah. and you guys are acting like everything is fine. And, and that's the type of mentality that needs to kind of shift. 
One for thirteen so far on the power play. They've given up the two shorthanded goals. You all know that. You all know this already because yeah. uh, it's been the biggest reason why the Canucks are zero and two right now. One hundred percent. And I mean, you know, uh, Rager's texting in. Are you guys going to point out the main culprit of that attitude? And JT Miller is the main culprit of it. Yeah. But the issue that I've had all along about the leadership group is you're going to have prickly personalities. You're going to have a guy that's an alpha. You're going to have certain things. But how does your group handle that? But we've also seen JT, like, you know, essentially cuss at himself for for his poor play at 100%. different times in his Canucks career. 100%. But, like, you know, it comes down to more than one guy. Yeah. Right? And who's checking JT? Yeah. Is that happening? Is there anybody on this roster that should check JT? It should. Check you know, and listen, JT. we don't know that maybe Bo is. Maybe yeah. he has. And, and maybe still you have. And I'm not trying to say there's an issue with Bo and JT. There isn't, right? Yeah. That's not the point I'm trying to make. My point being here is you have imperfect personalities on teams. That is going to happen. And I'm fine with having guys that are like JT. But how does your overall group come together? And, and how does your overall group hold itself accountable? And that's the biggest thing with this team. I, I don't see the, this internal accountability that we saw in the past. And that's what Yannick was getting to when he was on with us mm-hmm. last week about he's been on teams that went to Game 7 of a Stanley Cup final. He's been on teams that have had year-to-year success winning President Trophies, right? Making playoff runs, getting into the postseason year in, year out. He knows what it takes to yeah. get there. He knows the accountability you need in dressing rooms. And he's pointing it out as saying, these are problems that are trending, and that's kind of what they need to overcome as a group. And listen, we're on the outside. We don't know who the biggest culprit is, but that has to change. And JT should be wearing it right now. Sat, my biggest issue with this, the, the core group of, of this team, look, I've never really doubted the talent. From day one, I've, uh, even last year, I thought there was enough talent on this team to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Okay? Obviously, I was wrong. <laughs> and, and my take looks bad, looks poor. Well, and well, I still I think that this year. In. because two games in. No, but... The the thing about this team that maybe I've constantly underestimated is they underperform under pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, outside of the postseason. Yeah. The bubble year. I, I mean... Now, do you say the leadership group was better because you had Chris Tanev, Markstrom, and Edler? Potentially. I mean, it seemed to be a big thing going into the North Division right. year that those guys were all gone out of the roster. And that's when things started to go haywire. But even think about last year, even as good as they were for the 56 games under Bruce Boudreaux. Remember they had that big homestand, uh, you know, in, in March, I guess it was. And there was those games against like Buffalo and Detroit. Oh, and, that, and that's they where just, they laid an egg. They yeah. just... The pressure was on then, yeah. you know, and they laid the biggest possible eggs against two teams near the bottom of the standings, two games that you had to win in your playoff push, and they stunk the joint out. They didn't respect your opponent enough. Yeah. And and to me, when you have those moments and you haven't earned it yet, yeah, that's worth criticizing. And listen, and I made this point on the postgame show, and I make the point again. These are things that can evolve and get better as the season goes on. Yes. Like their season isn't over. Like I, I don't think it's over at all. I, I bet on this team to make the playoffs. I'm not changing that two games into the season. Yeah, But I, I do think we have to point these things. I think if, you, if we're doing a, a objective evaluation of this team, what the expectations were, what the standards of expectation were, yeah. what the organization has been talking about, the things they want to see— they're not exhibiting those things. Yeah. So we should be grading it as we go on. And so far, the grade isn't good. Yeah. Like They're getting bad grades through how they handle the preseason. They're getting bad grades through the first two games of the season. That deserves criticism because all these guys have been here. The expectations should be higher. The standards should be higher. The accountability should be better on that team. But they can still get better and figure this stuff out. Yes. But the bigger question is, too, big picture, 
how much maturity can happen this year and how much of it is you are who you are. It, it comes down to their top players, right? And it comes like $56 million man, JT Miller, has got to be better. Quinn Hughes, we haven't seen the best from Hughes so far. Elias Pettersson, I mean, uh, I saw it in moments in the first game, but I did not like his game at all on, on Saturday, even despite what some of the, the metrics and everything else yeah. say. Uh, I... I I just I know I can see Elias Pettersson be better. You know that's that's kind of the story. Uh, Horvat is has kind of been Horvat for me, <laughs> um, but it, it really just comes down to those guys. You know, Saturday when you're looking at Nils Hoglander being your best forward on the ice, and you're looking at Kyle Burrows being maybe your best overall player in the game. Yeah, you know, it was kind of ironic that Torts was coaching on the other side because that's what it felt like, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, it's good for David Booth when he's our best player, but yeah. it's not good for us when David yeah. Booth is our best player, and that's that's what it felt like on Saturday. There's 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 got to be just more expectation. There's got to be a higher standard for the core for the talented core of this team that they have to hit, Sat, because they're the ones this group relies on to actually get Ws and going to get them to the playoffs. Yeah, and if you look at their absolute top-end guys, mm-hmm. they're the ones, like you mentioned, who are the biggest issues. Because I, I see the the conversation being around this team's defense, and if this team's defense doesn't improve, they're going to be screwed. And I think big picture-wise, if this team's defense doesn't improve and they don't have more coming down the road and they don't evolve then it will limit their potential as an organization in terms of their pursuit to be yeah. a cup contender. But as we sit here and, and speak today, as we evaluate the first two games of the season and heading into what's going to be happening here, um, the rest of this road trip, the defense hasn't been the problem. No. Individual defensemen making mistakes hasn't been the problem. You could say that Quinn Hughes hasn't been as good as he can be, which kind of puts a microscope player. on the rest of the defense because if you don't have Hughes going, then... Fair, but they're not the ones that are causing problems. Like your, your expectation is for, for Quinn to be a great player. Yeah. And if Quinn's not playing at a great level, and I'm not putting blame on him, well, that's going to take away from your defense, but that's not the fault of the other guys that are doing their job. Yes. Like, sure, the defense can be better, but they're not losing games because the defense is breaking down. They're yeah. losing games because the forwards are making mistakes. They're, make, they're losing games because of uh, of bad reads and... and and poor special teams that usually the forwards are at fault. Sure, Quinn, and even Quinn, you can make the case that on the power play, they're getting too many odd man chances. You're the defenseman. As much as you have freedom of roam, like, you still have a responsibility to read the play and, and not let that happen too many times. And maybe that was the reason why Boudreaux took Quinn off the first unit for a few moments at well, least. It felt like Boudreaux, like, towards the end of that game, was, was coaching out of frustration. He was sending messages. Yeah. You know, and putting the fourth line out there a couple of times in the last five minutes, taking Quinn yeah. off of, of power play one for, for a moment, uh, even putting OEL and Quinn on the power play after they gave up the shorthanded goal. I mean, it, it did feel there were moments where Boudreaux was coaching out of frustration on Saturday. It certainly was. And I think part of the reason why you're hearing, you know, Elliot talk about what's going on with the Canucks and everything like that yeah. too is it raised eyebrows seeing them get backskated essentially on Sunday. Sunday before a back-to-back. The Canucks are playing four games in six nights. Yeah. They're on a five-game road trip. Traveling east to west <laughs> and they used, after this road trip. They used a day, which probably would have been wise to have a day off, to skate the guys hard mm-hmm. early in the season. Two games in. We're sit- fans sitting here saying, you know, post-game show, they're like, you're, you're too hard on the team. There's only two games in. I'm too hard on them. I'm, I'm being critical. If it was up to me as a coach, I would have not have backskated them. Boudreaux backskated the yeah. guys after a loss heading into a back-to-back situation. If, if that doesn't tell you about... 
the immediacy of the situation, not in terms of he's going to get fired, but he understands the importance of the start of the season. He understands what they need to do to establish themselves. He understands that if they don't have a good start and they don't play well this year, he's probably not coming back next season. So the coach is already frustrated and already putting these guys' feet to the fire. And I think part of the reason why you're seeing the buzz around the league about, A, is Boudreaux in trouble here is because that stuff is happening early in the season. The organization's own reaction is, this isn't acceptable, we have to be better. Sad, I've been uh, the king of the uh, It's Early fan club. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, hey, like let's relax most of the time. Last year, I, let's let's chill. Yeah. You know, sit down, have your siphon, a nice little espresso, maybe some biscotti with some Nutella on the side, you know, and, and just chill. You know, there's a lot of games. There's a lot of hockey left to play. But after last season, you you cannot uh, like there is no point where it's too early anymore for this club and especially for this core group that was run back yet again by this organization. I, I, I think there shouldn't be complacency and there shouldn't be complacency in expectations. Yeah. You know what I mean? And listen, I'm not tra- telling fans how to fan. They can fan however you want. You want to support all the time and think it's early. That's fine. I'm not telling you how to fan. Like Believe if you want. Like You know what? I love fans who have super heart and yeah. are always positive and always believe. Because, I mean, I love seeing that. I mean, that, that's a great mindset to always be happy. Yes. You know, as long as you don't have, like, the angry positivity where you're, like, getting angry at people all the time for being even <laughs> somewhat objective, that's not, that's yes. not you know, that's, that's not being positive. That's just being, you know, very angry all the time. <laughs> but regardless, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is we, we shouldn't be like, oh, it's okay, it's fine. Like, no, like, the expectation should be higher. There shouldn't be complacency in early part of the season. But... I look at what Boudreaux is trying to accomplish here, and it makes sense why Boudreaux, when you look at, say, the lineup decisions he's made, because there's been some criticism about, like, okay, why is this guy playing with this guy? Why is that guy playing with that guy? A lot of it is built into we're trying to get off to a good start this season. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, lot of, a lot of what they were trying to do throughout training camp and trying to do early in the season, and of course, everybody says they want to get off to a good start. But you mentioned they've been getting off to bad starts in the past. They wanted to change it this year. And as that process has gone on, it hasn't gone the way they've wanted. And I think there's a lot of frustration in that because they're doing everything they can, they feel like, or I think the coach feels like in terms of this and that, trying to put guys together. Well, and it's just not, you know, well, it's not working the way Well, it comes back to the, the core, Sat. You know, like they've talked about ad nauseum how they need and they know and they understand they've got to get off to a better start. And legitimately, you know, I know uh, we talked about the criticism of Horvat after night one. Obviously, the criticism has shifted over to JT Miller, even by his own account. But, like, look back through the preseason and some of the games that JT Miller played. And, and yeah, like, he felt like he was never really out of first gear mm-hmm. in the preseason. Yeah, And, you know, there's... A little bit of leash there. He's a veteran just coming off a 99-point season. I'm going to trust that he understands and knows how he has to get himself ready for the season. But now the first two games have come, and he's been the Canucks' worst player through the first two games. He's been on the ice for all eight goals against, as you've heard a thousand times. Like, that's – if he's one of the leaders of your team, you know, then then he's got a lead, right? And that speaks to his comments on Saturday of – you know, I, I, I can't really put anything on anybody else when I don't have a leg to stand on right now. And that's that's sure. part of the issue of where they're at right yeah, now. Yeah, and, you know, listen, I've I, I've heard all the post-game speeches. Yeah. I, I don't need to hear another post-game speech from anybody on this team yeah. about bad starts, not doing the right things, and all that sort of stuff. They're incredible at giving speeches. 
Yeah. My goodness. They got some valedictorians <laughs> on this team in terms Who's of writing their it. speeches. Right? <laughs> That's fantastic. Maybe, no, I mean, like they, they've been accountable post game. They said the right things. They've, they've, they've done those sort of things, but it's still been exhibited. And again, yeah. like to me, it comes down to when you're evaluating a leadership group and especially for, I would imagine for a guy like Rutherford and even Alvin, because they were in Pittsburgh for so long. Sidney Crosby and Yevgeny Malkin would go toe to toe. Yeah. How many stories did you hear about the competitiveness of those practices mm-hmm. and like how angry they get at each other if, if, if somebody made a mistake or they weren't doing the things they needed to do? And there was real accountability. And that's something Bieksa talked about too so many times about disorganization in the past and, and what happened. That's my biggest question about this team. Again, it's how is the internal accountability happening? Because the real mature teams, they have those individuals that not are good leaders and good players, but they're able to create that accountability. Yeah. You know, and you're going to have players that don't fit in, but how do you put those pieces together? And as they try to figure out the real leader of this team, and we'll see what Bo and how the situation goes, but I think there should be real, there are real questions about the dynamic with all that. They're all good guys. Mm-hmm. When things are going well, they can play well together. They've shown they have talent. There's a lot there to like about the group, each other and all that sort of stuff. But are you accountable enough? Are you serious enough? Because this organization has seen serious hockey players. Rutherford and Alvin, they've seen serious hockey players. Yeah. How serious do they think the leaders here are? Well, and uh, they've, they've committed now to Miller for seven more years beyond this one at $56 bucks. Um, Horvat, they have yet to make that decision. They did not make a big commitment, despite what some people think, to Brock Besser. It was sort of a uh, <laughs> a compromise based on the situation with Besser. But there are like there's still a large part of this core that if they were motivated to, they could, you know, find ways to to move off of. Right? Like that's that's part of this offseason. As much as they've run back most of what they have like they're still not incredibly committed mm-hmm. to a lot of this roster. Well, I mean, you know, Rager says, "What if management and the coach misread the room and Miller is the odd man out? What then?" Well, then you, I don't believe in doubling down on mistakes. Yeah, I think teams that identify their mistakes and get out from them the quickest are the teams that are always the most successful. And you've seen Rutherford do this in the past, where he's moved off a guy. And I don't listen. I'm not trying to do the trade. One thing I've actually. I, for all the criticism the post-game show has gotten for, for us ripping into the team after the yeah. first two games, we haven't been sitting here and saying trade people. We haven't been sitting here no. and saying fire people. We've just been critical about what we've seen on the ice. And I'm not trying to do the trade thing. Like That's not my point here. But JT, if, if things to the point Rager is making, if it becomes very clear like he's actually the problem, then you, he doesn't have that NTC kicking in until next year. Yeah, they did, uh, they did leave themselves an out so to speak, yeah. even with uh, JT. But uh, you have to imagine if, if he's not having a strong season, it's going to be very hard to move uh, JT Miller, should that be uh, one of the outcomes yeah. that happens over the course of the next couple of months. Um, it, it's it's a lot. And, and yeah, it does feel as though maybe um, harsh after two games. But ultimately, that is the level of pressure that is the level of um well that's the standard that should be on this team this year because they they do have a lot that they need to accomplish Mm -hmm. and they they do need to carry on what they saw last year if they plan on keeping this group together so again 
it's not early anymore with this franchise and this organization for me. No, and, and honestly, like for as much as for, for as much talk as there is about the response against Washington tonight, I mean, it, Boudreaux's going for a six hundredth win again with, with the team that yep. he started his National Hockey League coaching career with, a team he had the most success with. Yep. You saying there's uh, there's something on the board tonight, Sat? I'd say regardless of I'm not saying there's something seven, on the board. I'm, I'm just, just saying I'm just saying even if even if the Canucks had won the first two games, if they really truly love the coach, they would be going all out to get him the win against his former coach. If this if this was still setting up, I'm, I know he, he could have got the first two. But my point being, even even if it's set up, they have won the first two games, and there, there wasn't this like immediacy and, and and this criticism around the team. I still think this team would be up for this game if you'd like your coach. And if you're not, there's a bigger issue. So I don't think today is really an indication of, oh, they figured it out. Like, you, you 600th win for your coach yeah. against Washington. If you guys can't play for this coach who fixed your season last year tonight, then I don't know, man. I don't know what to say. And, and as much as, uh, you know, they've gotten off to good starts in each of their first two games this season, you know, 3-0 on Edmonton, 2-0 uh, after the first in Edmonton, 2-0 after the first in Philly. Like they were kind of gifted those goals, right? Yeah. Poor goaltending uh, was was a part in that as well. So you just want to see better process from this team. Stan Richo, Satyar Shaw. More on the Canucks and Washington Capitals coming up on Canucks Central and Sportsnet Six. 650-